Well, we, we've just, you know, circled around the, or maybe we oval around the sun, I'm not sure. Uh, 365 days, new, new days ahead. I always love this time of year. There just seems to be newfound hope and, and possibilities, and, and a lot of people want to set goals and do stuff, and I don't mind that at all. I think it's a good idea to have some goals and visions for your life. Uh, but we want to find out what God says about our lives and what we should be doing. And I, I noticed something on um, November 29th this year, just a few weeks ago, I was at the Columbus North High School boys, girls, varsity basketball team chapel. And they had just finished uh, their practices. And I got there about 15 minutes early, and I was watching the, um, the boys practice. And I noticed they kept going through the same drill over and over and over and over and over again. They kept going through this drill, and the drill was set up like this. There's like 12 seconds left in the game. We're like one point down. Our opponents are shooting a free throw. What are we going to do when that free throw is shot in 12 seconds? So they'd run the drill, and then they'd come back, and they'd do it again, and then they'd do it again, and then they'd do it again. And so I was watching that, and I said, you know what? You know what those coaches are trying to do? They're trying to give their team the best chance of winning. They're trying to prepare them. They found different scenarios, and I'm sure that there were other scenarios that they did too, but that was the one they were doing that night. Here's what we do. And so I thought, man, that's, that's the way the kingdom of God, we, we believers should be like that. Hey, what different kind of scenarios could happen, and, and how, do we, how do we walk in victory over this? See, there's a popular little bracelet that's been worn. I'm not opposed to it, but it's WWJD. Has anybody ever heard of that? What would Jesus do? And I think that's wonderful, but I finally thought about this. I said, you know what? It's too late in the moment of the trouble to decide what would Jesus do. You need to figure it out before you get in the situation. And if you're going to do what Jesus would do in a particular situation, then you should be doing what Jesus did because that will prepare you for the situation. And so I want to talk about that today, preparing ourselves what, what does God say about this? Preparing ourselves, training ourselves, so to speak, to win. I really believe this. God wants you to win. Now you could say, well, I just think that's, you know, some kind of self-help message. I think it's a Bible message. God wants you to win. Do you notice that every place God, you end up in God is a really good place? The Garden of Eden was a really good place. The Promised Land was a really good place. Heaven's a really good place. The new heavens and the new earth will be a really good place. There's, every place God takes us to is someplace wonderful. And so what does God say? So let's look at this today. What does God say about preparing to win? I also put in parentheses on that, training as well. Because when we prepare, we're training for something. And it takes an investment of time and energy to do that. I also thought about the, uh, all the sports teams, sports teams around the world, businesses. Everybody's preparing to win. Everybody's got a game plan to win. They're preparing to win, and it helps us win. And so I thought about that, and I thought, if you've ever played sports or you've done anything that would require preparation, you didn't just, do, like church, we're here like for 90 minutes, one time a week. I just want to ask honestly, how good of a basketball team do you think there would be if they practiced 90 minutes one time a week? No, not very good. And uh, you say, well, so... Should we have church every day? Probably, but I will say this. You can have church every day. You, if, if this is all you get, it's not enough. 
Now, I hope that you get something here that you want to take with you so you can begin to dig in. And that's one of our passions for discipleship is, is we, we have to have something to take in, dig in. You can, you can go to Christian discipleship practice every day a week, every day in your own personal life. And so we have to determine what does God consider a win? That, that's why it's so important. I mean, we're here because you know you gathered in a church, uh, one that loves Jesus, that teaches the Bible, and so we're going to look at that. Now, the world, the world thinks, like, for instance, if you, if you ask people just out there in the world, uh, what is success, what do you think some people would say success is? Money. Yeah, that's definitely it. What, what else? Just money, I guess. Okay, so just money. So how about this? You've seen the bumper sticker, haven't you? He who has the most toys wins because money and stuff are the one and two things. Now, I want to say this. I'm not opposed to having money and stuff. If you're like me, there was probably a time somewhere in your life. I remember when we were first married, we didn't have any money. Or stuff, exactly. That's exactly right. And I can tell you this. It's better to have money than not have it. it just, and also, because we think, well, those rich people, all they think about is money. Some of them might, but I can tell you this. I'm the richest I've ever been in my life. You say, how'd you get so rich? I got rid of three children who mooched off of me and took all my money. So, so now, I'm dead serious about this. About five years ago, I asked Arlene, I said, wow, we seem to have so much money, more money than we used to have. Well, what's up with that? And oh, we're not, we don't have an $800 grocery bill every week. That's what it is. And those were wonderful times. I get that. It's not really a complaint. It was just that I have more money now than I ever have. And I can tell you this, I think about money less now than I ever did. So you can say, rich people, all these things about money. Well, I've been poor before, and I thought about money a lot, <laughs> you know. Like, I need some money here. And so uh, you, you can't really say that. So I think we need to have a he- healthy understanding of money and stuff. And I don't mind if you have stuff. I'm happy for you to have stuff. This is not a preaching and teaching against stuff. Neither does the Bible teacher preach against that. Stuff doesn't need to have you. Money doesn't need to have you. But it's kind of nice to have stuff. I have lots of stuff. And you know what I like doing with the stuff? Sharing it. You can borrow this, borrow that. It's funny because we're scared to borrow stuff around here. My neighbor, I'll say, you can borrow this. And one time I looked and I had two, this is how rich I am, I had two functioning, really nice weed eaters. I know I'm a one percenter. Uh, I had two weed eaters. And I told my neighbor, I said, you can have this weed. It was a Husqvarna a nice weed eater. I said, I've used it about three times. You can have it. It was just mesmerizing to him. He couldn't do it. No, I I. I, do. I said, okay, well, then borrow it. And let me tell you what, stuff breaks. So if you happen to be weed, he's an intelligent person. I know he wasn't going to try to weed eat brick or something. He, so he's going to, I said, if it breaks, it just breaks. So no big deal. So we should have more than enough so we can share with people. Share your money, share your time, share your joy, share, share your hope, share your happiness, share your stuff, share it with people. So what does God think about what winning is, what success is? Even people who don't know the Lord, if you said, do you think really, if they got a little seasoning on them and half a brain, they will tell you that real life being enjoyed in every dimension will not be found in only money and stuff. They will tell you, if you work 80 hours a week and ruin your body and you're unhealthy, it doesn't matter how rich you are. I mean, you may be in the finest nursing center in the world, but that's not what you wanted. If you said, boy, I got so much money now, I worked 80 hours a week, 
I've ruined every marriage I've had. I've ruined my kids. I've ruined my relationships. I've ruined my friends. I am now all alone. Anybody would say, that's not winning. That's not success. There's all these different dimensions of life that God wants us to win in, and they get held in balance. And I believe God wants us to have wonderful relationships, have more than enough stuff, more than enough joy, more than all that stuff, so we can, we can share with other people, and that's a win when it's, when it's balanced. But Jesus gives us some very specific things as we approach a new year, some very specific things. Now, these aren't uh, questions like, where am I going to work? What should, I, should I go to college or not? What should, if I do, what should I study? What should my vocation be? Where should I live? And th- not those things, but very specific things that anyone everywhere can do, and he tells us what they are. And so we want to look at God's foundational truths, some foundational principles that are essential for us to have if we are going to be everything God's called us to be, and if we're going to win everywhere in life. So one day, you and I are going to stand before the Lord. We're going to stand before the creator of the universe. And I want to stand before him knowing that I invested my life doing things that he considered a win, that he considered, you know, success. Now, I do want to say this clearly. I'm not saying that, my goodness, if we find out what God likes and we do it, we could earn our way into heaven. That's not, you can't be good enough to earn your way into heaven. And so we just celebrated Christmas. Jesus came. God came, wrapped himself in a human body. He lived the sinless life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved. He took our sins, all of our sins. Paul said not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world were heaped upon Jesus. And Jesus gave us all his righteousness. That's the only way to heaven. You say, well, that seems kind of narrow. Well, that's probably why the Bible says narrow is the way. Jesus, the creator of the universe, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And so I encourage you, if you never said yes to Jesus, if you only said yes to, to good deeds, and I think we should do good deeds, but they don't earn heaven. So it's important for us to know what does God instruct us to do. So let's look at, these, at God's foundational instructions. In Matthew 6, They've been talking, Jesus has been talking about the birds of the air, they're not worrying, the flowers aren't worrying, the grass isn't worrying. So he instructs us not to worry. And in Matthew 6.31, he says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Now, I probably mention this every time, but it just amazes me. We're in church right now, and probably the three things, maybe we're not worrying about, but we're thinking about, is we got up this morning and said, what am I going to wear? I, I tell darling, what am I going to wear? She says, I don't know, but I hope it looked better than last week. I said, okay, well, thank you. No, she's very encouraging. And, uh, and then I think, I wonder if I wore this last week. And then I say to myself, if I don't remember if I wore it last week, they probably don't remember either. So if you see me wear the same thing 10 weeks in a row, that's probably because I don't remember. And maybe eventually I will. So we worry, what am I going to wear? I mean, ladies, some of you, your bedroom's strewn with clothes. Because you got up and, and what am I going to wear, what am I going to wear? And then we often start thinking, especially about 80% through the sermon, what am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? When am I going to eat? Uh, so we start worrying about those things. God says that we're not supposed to worry about those things. For the pagans, by the way, you sit here saying, what am I going to eat? Well, you pagan, because it says here, 
For the pagans ran after all these things. Now let me define a pagan. A pagan is somebody who doesn't know God. They don't have a relationship with God. They don't love God. Your neighbor could be a pagan and be the sweetest, nicest person you know. It doesn't mean they're evil or awful, but it means they don't have a relationship with God. They don't know the Lord. They don't trust the Lord. They're just doing their own thing in life. And it says, for the pagans run after all these things. Now, here is why the word of God is so important for us to know. There's so much teaching about God really doesn't want you to have anything. God doesn't want you to, God. In fact, uh, there used to be a saying like this for preachers. Uh, seriously, it used to be, they used to say it's about preachers. Uh, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. Okay, that used to be the statement. By the way, I've always been blessed by this church. So that, that was not, was that meant to be a jab? No, it's just that's the way people thought, that Christians should not have anything. And if you're really like a leadership, in leadership, if you lead Christians, then you really should not have anything. And that's never taught in the Bible. We read things like this. They say, see, God's not into us. He doesn't want you to have all this stuff. He doesn't want you. Well, let's see what the Bible actually says. It says, for the pagans run after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you, what's the next two words? Need them. Apparently, it's okay. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, but makes a little transition here that says, here's a couple different options you have. First option is, you can just do life on your own. You can worry about what you can get and what you can grab and how things are going to work. Or, but, here's another option, you could seek first God's kingdom. And you could seek first his righteousness. Now again, most teaching would be, well, you got to pick one or the other. Do I want some stuff or do I want God? But that's not what the Bible says. Look what the Bible says. But if you'll seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What? What things? The things the pagans are running after. God knows you need them. And so if you'll put him as a priority, it's almost like this, how I see it. Almost like God says, hey, if you make me a priority, I'll make all the stuff you need a priority. But if you want to do life on your own, you may. You can go, go for it. But you could have everything. You could have me and the stuff. So we need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. These are foundational things. I want you to get this down for the new year this is some of our to-do lists. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. You might also notice that it doesn't say seek only. We miss that. You say, well, I was, I was kind of going to look for a new job this year, but, but the Bible says don't do that. No, it doesn't. It says seek first the kingdom of God. You can seek other things, but when the kingdom's first and his righteousness is first, it directs your seeking on all the other levels and takes it to a proper level. So these are things we need to do in the new year that God considers a win. Are you seeking first my kingdom? Are you seeking first my righteousness? That's a win. What else does God clearly instruct us on? This is Jesus, by the way. He, Jesus the one who just told us those things. He's also going to tell us some more. In Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets, all the rules, all the regulations, everything hangs and hinges on these two commands. Love God with all you've got. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. This is a New Year's to-do list. We're going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. 
We're going to love God with all we have, and we're going to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. Now, I promise you this because it hits me every time I read this. I say, I'm supposed to love you, God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm not very good at that. I need your help. Isn't it amazing that we need God's help to love him? We do. Now, I'm going to love my neighbor like I love myself. I really like myself. I really love myself. Now, i got to love my neighbor like I love me. That's a challenge. I need God's help. And that's why the Bible says the love of God has been, probably the best translation be exploded in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We need God's help to love others and to love him. But it's on our to-do list. If you start doing those things, you'll get better at it. You know, anything you practice, you get better at. You just get better at it. And so let's put these things into practice. These were told us by Jesus. This is something for everyone to do. Doesn't matter what side of the globe you're on. Doesn't matter what your socioeconomical status is. This is something we can all do. So, what's some other things we can do? We want to develop winning habits. In the new year, we want to develop winning habits. I just picked one out of the things we could do, and that's daily time with God. Time with God in the Bible and in prayer. It's shocking how few Christians spend time with God every day. Now, I listed up here three different websites that you can do devotionals. Now, if that's a word you're not familiar with, usually little, little Bible studies that focus on God and prayer are called devotionals. And so crosswalk.com, I almost said CrossFit. Oh, I haven't done any CrossFit, I can tell you that, but Crosswalk, crosswalk.com has all kinds of devotions, all kinds of them. Now, there's probably 50, 60 of them on there, all different favorite preachers, good solid stuff. I've been to it many times, used a few of their things. First15.org, absolutely incredible thing. It really is. You can set your stopwatch. It's about 15 minutes long, and they're amazing. They give you time in the Word. They give you time in worship. They give you time in, in prayer, and it is absolutely uh, a wonderful, wonderful devotional that you can just, it'll do, just be emailed to your inbox if you have an email. And utmost.org, uh, Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, uh, probably the number one devotional. If not, it's got to be in the top two or three in the world uh, devotionals. They're absolutely amazing. They're challenging, uh, but loving and just really good. Uh, utmost.org. If you do it, I really want to say this, there is the classic version, which is a little older English, and I would recommend not doing that. I'd do the more modern translation because it'll be easier for you to understand. So those are three of a thousand different things you could do to develop a daily time with God. And I know sometimes, I don't know if you've ever read some of these things, or you read some old saint that's just, they say they get up every morning and spend two hours with God. I'm absolutely not opposed to that. I think it was um, uh, Martin Luther that said he spent like two hours a day with God in prayer unless he had a really busy day, then he spent three hours. And it's like, wow, you read that and you go, oh wow. Uh, and so we can get excited and go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to spend an hour in the word and an hour in prayer. Now you've never spent two minutes, but you're going to spend two hours probably aren't. I mean, if you can pull it off, I'm not dismissing that. Go for it. But I'm telling you, most people, it's a good idea to start small and build. Spend some time with God. Now, also what happens is we end up getting shamed. 
like, for instance, you, you're, not by people, by our own conscience, we go, oh my goodness, I, I was going to do my devotion every day, and I did it like the first 10 days in January, then I missed three days, and then I did a couple three days, and then I picked it back up. When you skip a day, just go right back at it. Go right back at it. Now you say, but I, if you came to me and said, I, I tried to do my devotion this year, Pastor, and say it's 365 days from today, and you said I was an utter failure, I looked over it, I did 270 days, that's all. Well, I would ask you, how many did you do the year before? None. Okay, you did 270? That's progress. You made some progress, so keep moving, dust off, go on, keep going. It's not like um, so many things you want to just quit. Some of you are going to have goals to eat right and be healthy this year. And maybe by January 7th or 8th, if you make it that far, you're going to say, oh, man, I, I think I've, I've fallen off the wagon. I'm not doing well now. And then you say, I know. I'll try again next year. No, don't try again next year. You can just start again tomorrow working on it. Don't wait another 11 months. So develop winning habits. The next one, resist sin. This is so important because we're going to see that sin produces death. If you're going to have a winning life, if, if you're going to have a successful life as God sees it successful, sin doesn't help. Sin produces death and produces problems. So, James 1, 14 through 15. Man, you've you got to be kind of old to know this, so I know some of you won't want to raise your hands, uh, but does anybody remember Flip Wilson? Man, you old people, I just heard of it. I'm so young, but no, I remember Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson had a tagline, the devil made me do it. That was his excuse for everything, the devil made me do it. Well, I don't like the devil, and I don't like to give him any credit for anything, but I'll tell you, we're going to see here that it's not always the devil that makes you do stuff. James chapter 1, 14 and 15. But each of us, but each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away by his own desire or lust and enticed. That's you and me. Every one of us. Every one of us are drug away by our own desires. And it says here that our own desires entice us. Then when desire or lust has conceived, it has a baby. It gives birth to what? Sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? Death. You're not going to win if you keep going towards death. You want to go towards life. And so what happens is we get a desire. Now, not all desires are bad. Even the word lust, we always use as a negative term, but you, can, you could lust for positive things. You'd have, you could have a strong desire for something positive. But generally speaking, this is all leading us towards sin, what I was talking about, is we get a, a thought. Maybe you're at work and you think, man, they don't pay me enough here and I'm going to help myself to some of their you know, computer equipment or some of their you know, supplies or tools or whatever. And that thought comes across your mind. Well, the first thing you say is, hold it. That's not who I am and that's not what I'm about. What did you just do? You couldn't stop that the thought came through your mind, but you can't stop dwelling on it. Because when you dwell on it, then what happens is it produces action. Eventually, if you dwell on it long enough, you'll go do something. It'll conceive. And then you'll sin. Then you'll take the tool or do whatever. And then eventually it produces death. 
I had that situation happen many years ago. I'll make it super short. I was in the computer business. I did business, um, uh, sold computers and service computers in the business world. Somebody brought in, uh, one of the companies came to us and said, hey, one of our computers is missing. They'll probably come here to get it repaired. I said, they won't come here to get it repaired. They know that we all do that. You know, they'll go to Cincinnati or Louisville or Indy. Well, lo and behold, four months later, in comes this computer, flags on our thing. And this person had a very lucrative, prosperous job, ends up getting fired by the company. They didn't press any criminal charges, but they fired him, and it produced death in their life. See, when I say sin produces death, I don't mean you're going to kill over dead, but now death is it. They now had death in their finances. I'm sure that didn't go well at home. Like, honey, why did you lose your job? Well, I lost this $60,000. I'm talking years ago. It was about a $60,000 job, and I'm talking in the 80s. I lost that $60,000 job, honey, because I stole a $2,000 computer. Wow, that's real smart. Produces death. So, stay away. Resist sin. Then, 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. This is so important. I know there's a lot of teaching here. Don't let teaching scare you. Okay, because sometimes it's like, ah, it's a lot of teaching. Okay, but it's okay. You can do it. You can learn. You know, open up your mind. You can do it. Okay. Paul, who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, is working with his apprentice, Timothy, and he's telling them all kinds of stuff to do, and I'm picking up on verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Now, here, listen to this. Nourished on the truths of the faith. Truths of the faith and of the good teaching you have followed have nothing. Now he's, he's juxtaposing this. You got good teaching, you know, solid faith, or there's all kinds of godless myths and old wives' tales. Stay away from that. I, I want to beg you to do this. I run into this all the time. Is there all kinds of fascinating stuff to think about in the Bible? Yes. And a big portion of it will do you no good. Tracy, I was reading this article. Do you think demons are fallen angels, or are they possibly the disembodied spirits of a pre-Adamic race? I'll tell you exactly. I don't know. (laughs) There could be arguments for all that. You know what I do know? Demons are subject to Satan who want to mess up our lives and Jesus took total authority over them and I have them. I have authority over demons. Okay, so do I really want to spend the next six years studying that out? I mean, it's fascinating, it's interesting, I get that, but we chase all this stuff and, and it's just like, you know what? Maybe you should just learn how to resist sin. Maybe you should learn something more productive. So, fascinating, yes. I get it. I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff, too. But I'm not going to invest too much time in it, because at the end, I won't even know if I got a good answer or not. But what I do know is applicable. Jesus took authority. Demons were subject to him. The people Jesus sent out said, even demons are subject to us in your name. And so, therefore, just go walk in authority and don't worry about it. Okay, so have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, instead of that, train yourself to be what? Godly. Train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. There's another life from the world. The world will tell you, well, I guess you can serve God 
and miss out on anything good in life and go to heaven one day. And so maybe we can say a salvation prayer, you know, three minutes before we die so we can really have enjoyed life. Are you kidding me? Jesus, the creator of life, said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest measure, have it overflowing, that you might enjoy a rich and satisfying life is the way the Amplified Bible puts it. And so here, the Bible goes on to say, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for what? All things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. I just, I know people think being a Christian isn't any fun. I'm telling you, I've, if anybody's had more fun in life, I've enjoyed life to the fullest. Now, I know people say, yeah, but, you know, I got a buddy that comes in at work or school on Monday morning, tells about all the sinful pleasures he had, and he's having the time of his life. He probably is. The Bible says sin's pleasurable for a season. But you know what I say over and over again. God's more concerned about you have an awesome, amazing life than a really fun weekend. And when you get to know God, your weekends can be fun and enjoyable with wholesome things. Okay, so godliness helps me now and in the future. It's a double win. The next thing I'm going to talk about, and the last thing I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about for a long time, but it is the last thing, is, is something that you probably will not totally get today. But I beg you to keep reinforcing this in your mind week after week, month after month, year after year, because the truth is kind of slippery, but it's totally uh, visible as we study the Word of God. Here it is. We need to get this buried in our mind and in our heart. We live in a place of victory. We live in a place of victory. Again, where'd you get that? From the Bible. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave you see that next word? It's all. He forgave all your sins. They've all been forgiven. Yeah, but you don't know the horrible, heinous things I did. I, I, I'm sorry, it didn't say. He forgave all your sins except the really bad ones. It says, no, he forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against you. You know, if there was a, a heavenly police department, it had all kinds of, of uh, bulletins on you and had all kinds of, you know, warrants out for you, but God canceled them and took them away and nailed them to what? The cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So according to the Bible, all my sins are forgiven those who opposed me, all the records they had, they got lost in a fire on the cross. They're gone. Can't find anything. Say that Tracy's guilty for anything. And the, see, the power of the enemy is, is oftentimes uh, shame and accusation. They're, it's powerful force of the enemy to shame you and accuse you. And yet there's no evidence that his accusations have any value. And he got disarmed because of that. He cannot... Well, produce the paperwork if he's so awful. I can't find the paperwork. That's because it got nailed to the cross. And all my sins are forgiven. And all the ability the enemy had against me has been disarmed. 
And Jesus said, let's take another level. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. And in some way, you and I, when we leave sin behind and we fall in love with Jesus, we become this new creation, we become a daily reminder to the devil that he is shamed. And you walk out into public and they go, and I've shared with people before, I say, oh, do you know so-and-so, they're a Christian? They go, they're a what? They're a Christian. I went to school with them. I would have, what? I said, yes, they are born again, on fire, believer for Jesus, and it actually shames the devil when people get saved and born again because we become what the Bible said, Paul said, living epistles or living letters. We're showing the world, and the devil gets a black eye. He hates all human beings, but he probably hates you as a believer even more than the average. That's my opinion, so don't build a doctrine out of that. And some people go, oh, I don't want the devil mad at me. Why not? He don't like you. It's okay. He doesn't like you. He hates you. But you know who does like you? Jesus does. You know who loves you? Jesus does. You know who your defense attorney is? Jesus is. Do you know what happens? You know what happens when the devil comes up? Jesus steps up and says, hey, if you're going to get to them, you've got to go through me. And he says, never mind. Wow, this is awesome. We live in a place of victory. Yeah, but Tracy, I, I haven't been living so well lately. Well, stop it. You know, you start living better. But I'm telling you, that does, you have a bad day doesn't change. The God said, well, I, I don't want anything to do with them again. The story that Jesus told of the prodigal son was not an accident. It was very thorough. I mean, he made the son's behavior about as disgusting as you can get. He basically went to his dad and said this, you're worth more to me dead. That's what he was saying. I want my inheritance now. You're worth more to me dead. So give me the money. Why? So I can run off to a faraway country and spend it on wine, women, and song. And that's what he did. And then he ate with pigs. He said he longed to fill his belly with what the pigs were eating. And to a Jewish person, that would have been the worst job ever. Pigs were unclean animals, and here you are watching pigs. That wasn't an accident that Jesus told this story so specifically. I want to ask the question, if you're familiar with the story, did his father still love him? Was his father constantly looking for him to return? When he returned, did he make him grovel? No. In fact, he said, quick, kill the fatted calf. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. For my son that was dead, is now alive again. Oh, man, Jesus is good. Hmm. Ephesians 1, 13 through 21, and we'll pick up one verse in Ephesians 2. Hmm. Paul's praying for these Ephesian Christians. They're Gentiles. They live in an avant-garde community. They're, uh, as far as the world's concerned, this, this place is really all that. It's pretty cool. It says, Paul says to these Ephesian Christians, I pray that the eyes of your heart or your understanding may be enlightened. The light might be shedded on, shed on how you see things. 
he said, why am I praying this? In order that you may know. There's three things Paul wants him to know. I want you to know this today. That you may know the hope to which he has called you. The hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. The power that was exerted is at work for us. The power he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Where is this seat of authority? It is far above, not a little bit above, far above all rule, far above all authority, far above all power, far above all dominion, far above every name that is invoked or could be called upon, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. The sentence written by the Holy Spirit is all-encompassing and covers it all. Now, what I often say is we look at that and say, well, that's good for Jesus, but what about us? Well, what about us is in the next chapter, in verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Wow. Now, if you, if you forget where that's at, just read verse 20 and 21 again. He's seated far above. We're raised up with him. We're seated far above. Hmm. You and I wake up, go to sleep, draw our breaths in victory. We live in a place of victory. Yeah, but bad stuff happens. I, you know, so I'm not, I'm not disclaiming that. I'm just saying I wake up in victory. King David woke up, looked outside, looked every direction. As far as he could see, was a massive army against him. Can we all agree that's not a good day? And the Bible says they went back in the tent and slept. How? Because everything he saw, he knew as God was bigger than that. He knew this. If they killed him, his God's bigger than that. It, it doesn't, didn't matter. Paul said, I'm going to glorify you in life or in death. I'm going to glorify you. I'm going to magnify you in all ways at all times. So here's our quick little recap and our focus as we move into this new year. Follow God's foundational instructions, which are seek first his kingdom and righteousness, love God and love others. Second, Develop winning habits, a Bible study, and prayer time. So find a great devotional. They make hard copies, too. If you say, well, I don't have a computer, that's fine. You can go to any Bible bookstore or, or have somebody order it for you online, and you can find a great hardback paper copy of a devotional. Third thing, resist sin because it ultimately leads to death. And so if we're going to win, we don't want death. We want life. And then understand and know this. You live in a place of victory. You live in a place of victory. And that's usually not something that you learn in a moment, but keep pressing in. October 20th, 1968, in Mexico City, in the Olympic Stadium, all the people were coming in from having finished a marathon. 
So the marathon event was wrapping up. Marathon event, in case you don't remember, 26 miles, 385 yards. That's like running from my house to here and back to my house. I can't even imagine that. So anyway, so earlier, a guy from Ethiopia, an hour earlier to the point I'm going to talk about, had crossed the finish line. They said he looked as fresh as when he left. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, those Ethiopians can run, man. They, they are amazing runners. And so there's a few thousand fans left of the tens of thousands that were there watching the event wrap up, and they were getting ready to go. And all of a sudden, the, some sirens and some whistles went up at the gate where they would come in and take a final lap around the track. And there was some guy, and he's like running along, just he's limping. He can barely make it, and he's limping along. And his knees all bandaged up, his legs bandaged up, there's blood all over him. And he's there watching this guy. And he comes in. I mean, this the event, their mind's over. People are packing up and heading home. It's been long over. And all of a sudden, this guy comes in. He's limping towards the finish line. The people who are there stand up, give the guy a standing ovation, applaud him, cheer him on. He crosses the line. And uh, finally, a reporter went to him. He was from Tanzania. His name was John Stephen Aquari. And they said, goodness, you know, you... You fell badly in the race. You were seriously injured. You're all bloody. It would have been okay for you to quit. It would have been okay for you to stop, to not go on. Why did you do it? Here was John Stephen Aquari's answer. My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start a race. My country sent me to finish. You have a king, and you're in a race. Paul said this, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my course. I've run my race. There's a race. And I really challenge me, you, all this with this. God didn't call you into this just to start. He called you into this to finish. And so if we got to sometimes on the stretch, limp along, bandage up our leg, bleed everywhere, and then get, you know, there's times like that. But my goodness, he got a standing ovation. Can you imagine the ovation we will get in heaven? As we cross the line, you are called to finish the race, not just start it.